So last week we were in Colossians chapter 4 verses 14 through 17. Uh, we were, we have been for the past five weeks looking at uh, Paul's ministry partners, uh, and we actually wrapped up looking at Paul's ministry partners last week. And in our study of those, um, of those people that have been kind of doing life with Paul, that have been walking with Paul, teaching with Paul, doing ministry with Paul, uh, we've been looking at things that, um, you know, hopefully that we can learn about church, about ministry for ourselves. And last week we looked at three specific things uh, that we could learn about church and ministry. Uh, the first being that church or that ministry is multifaceted. Uh, that a lot of times when we think of ministry, we have this you know one size fits all picture. That ministry is teaching from a pulpit, ministry is singing from the stage, and that's about it. You know, on a Sunday or during a Bible study or something along those lines, and that's that's about it. Uh, but as we saw, that that's not the case. That basically all of our life is ministry. That there isn't one way or one size fits all uh, to do ministry. Uh, we looked at the person of Luke. Uh, who has done, obviously, ministry with Paul. Uh, Paul calls him the beloved one. So in character, this is what we know about him, that he is the beloved one. Uh, professionally, uh, he is the physician. Uh, so character-wise, he's the beloved one. Uh, by the way, uh, that is the same phrase that Jesus or that the Father uses of Jesus. So when Jesus was being baptized, the Father speaks, this is my beloved Son, in him I am well pleased. And so we know that the same term that the father uses of the son is the same term that Paul uses of Luke. And so we can kind of, it kind of speaks to his character of what kind of person that Luke was. Then professionally, Luke is the physician. He's the doctor. Uh, and it's believed that one of the reasons that he's traveling with uh, Paul is to treat him, right? Paul suffered from a lot of physical ailments. He, he got beat all the time. Uh, and so he's suffering all these things. And so Luke, one of the reasons that Luke is traveling with him is to kind of help him, uh, you know, ease that, some of that discomfort. Uh, Luke is also known as the evangelist. So in the church, so to speak, you know, in the traditional sense of ministry, Luke is the evangelist. He helps, you know, Paul teach. He's a writer. He's a researcher. Uh, he's the one who wrote the gospel of Luke. He's the one who wrote the book of Acts. And so uh, he's, you know, doing all this research, doing all this writing to put the gospel together. To He's interviewing all these people to get an accurate account of Jesus's life, of the disciples' lives, of the, of the work of the disciples. And what we see from Luke is that whether it's in character whether it's professionally, whether, you know, he's teaching, whether he's writing, whether, you know, whatever it is in every aspect of his life, it all points to Christ. That he's using all of his gifts, he's using all of his talents, he's using all of this knowledge and wisdom that he has acquired uh, to use them for the glory of Christ, to advance the gospel. And so it's all ministry. That there isn't like this on-off switch, you know, where Luke is going to use his gifts and talents and, and be a quote-unquote Christian in this area of his life and then not be in this area of his life. Wherever God has placed him, it all points to Christ. And so what we see from him is that it's all ministry. So whether it's at work, whether it's at home, whether it's at school, whether it's wherever it is that God has placed us, we need to begin to see that it's all ministry. Right? So ministry is multifaceted. Your gifts are needed wherever God has placed you. Uh, your identity in Christ doesn't have this on-off switch. Right? That, again, you're not a Christian in one place and then not a Christian in any other place. Uh, your identity in Christ is your identity in Christ, period. And so wherever it is, again, that God has placed you, your gifts, your talents, your resources, your wisdom, whatever it is that God has blessed you with, granted you with, whoever it is that God has placed you around, your talents, your gifts are needed there. We need to start looking at those places as ministry, right? So ministry is multifaceted. It isn't just like this one size fits all uh, thing. The second thing that we saw is that ministry is sacrificial. Uh, so we looked at this person named Archippus. Uh, Paul, you know, is encouraging him to be observant, to be watchful, right? There's all these, you know, false teachings that are coming into the church. And so he's reminding him, hey, be observant, be watchful, complete the ministry that's been given to you. 
don't fall short of the ministry that's been given to you. Um, yes, there's cost. Yes, there's trials, you know, but keep going is what he's telling him. Um, you know, don't stop short of, again, what it is that the Lord has given you to do. We compared that to this person named Damis, who isn't, there isn't a lot written about him in, uh, in the book of Colossians, but we, we find out about him or we find out more about him later on in Paul's life. Uh, towards the end of Paul's life in the book of Second Timothy, that's the last letter that Paul has written, uh, he writes about this person. And he says, for the love of the world, Damis has deserted me. Right? So he's gone off. He's left. Uh, and we find out the only reason that we know of is that for this love of the world. So we don't know exactly what has caused him to go. But we do know that Damis had an upfront view, an up close and personal view of the cost that Paul had to pay. Right? That Paul was in prison, that Paul was being beaten, that Paul was suffering a lot you know, for the sake of the gospel. And Damis being one of his ministry partners saw firsthand just how much Paul had to pay. Right, that there was this cost, that ministry is sacrificial. And he's seeing all this, and at some point he decides, I'm done, I'm out, I don't want any part of this anymore. So he leaves. And Paul says, for the love of this world, he has deserted us, he has left. Right. And so, um, you know, though you know, we see that Paul pays this you know, uh, high cost, we looked at some of, other, some of uh, Paul's other ministry partners who also paid a very high price, whether being beaten or whether being uh, you know, arrested and so on and so forth. We said that, just because, you know, if you're not being arrested, if you're not being beaten, if you're not being killed for your faith, that doesn't mean you're not in ministry. That doesn't mean that you have no faith or anything like that. That's not the case at all. But we did say, and we need to know this for sure, that there is a cost. There absolutely is a cost, right? There is a cost, you know, again, ministry is not just teaching. Ministry is not just, you know, singing from a stage. Again, if our whole life is ministry, then we need to understand that this is a cost. That there is a cost to do life with Jesus. There is a cost to be obedient to Jesus. There is a cost to say yes to him and no to yourself. There is a cost to say, Lord, you know, when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, Father our, uh, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Right? There's a cost to, to pray that prayer. Because what you're saying is, Lord, I want your name to be hallowed. I want your name to be honored. I want your name to be revered. I want your name to be in the spotlight, not mine. I want your kingdom to come. I want your will to be done, not mine. So there is a cost, a very real cost to deny yourself, a very real cost to pick up your cross, a very real cost to say yes to Jesus, to be obedient to him. So we need to know that. We, we, can't, we can't deny that. We can't you know, uh, think that following Jesus is always going to be out of convenience, out of ease, so on and so forth. That's not the, tra- that's not the case. Right? Uh, that there is a cost in following him. There is a cost in doing life with him. But finally, we said number three, that ministry is worth it. That it's worth it. Um, there is no greater person worthy of our praise, of our attention, than the King of Kings. There is no greater love than the one of Christ. There is no, no greater love that is deeper, that is wider, that is higher than the love of Christ for you. There is no greater joy to know and to be known by Christ and to make him known. There is no greater joy. To go where he says go, to, to do what he says do, there's no greater joy. And so though there is a cost, a very real cost to say yes to him, it is absolutely worth it to follow him, to do as he says do, to go where he says go. So that was last week. Uh, and again, that was wrapping up Paul's ministry partners. Uh, today, we will finally wrap up our study of Colossians. We're going to look at Colossians chapter 4, verse 18, and then basically recap uh, you know, some of the big things that we've covered uh, throughout our study. 
Uh, so Colossians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul writes, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. And so it's with this that Paul, you know, finalizes his letter, uh, this letter that throughout he's been rejoicing for the church in Colossae. He's been encouraging them. He's been warning them. Uh, he's been praying for them. Uh, he lets them know how hard he's contending for them, uh, all the while pointing them to Christ. That's his main goal, is to point them to Christ. Uh, throughout our study, we looked at, again, four major themes that Paul consistently refers to. Um, the first one being, who is God? He wants to lay out for the Colossians, he wants to remind the Colossians, who is who is God? He speaks of the Trinity. He speaks of the Father. Uh, you know, From the very beginning in chapter 1, verse 12, he says that it's the Father who has qualified, qualified us, qualified you by his grace to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. That it's the Father who has qualified us, that we did not qualify ourselves. We did not qualify or disqualify ourselves. Well, actually, we technically, we disqualified ourselves, right? Because of our sin, we have, we said we don't want any part with God, but it's God, the Father, who has qualified us by his grace, not by our own works, but by his grace, uh, to share in the inheritance of his people, to bring us into this kingdom of light. The Father did that. He did that. Uh, he speaks of the Spirit. Uh, Paul speaks of the Spirit as the giver of wisdom and understanding that we may know God's will, that the Holy Spirit now lives within every believer, and the Holy Spirit gives us wisdom, gives us insight into the will of God, that we can know God's will for our life by God's grace because God has placed his Holy Spirit within us. So the Holy Spirit guides us. The Holy Spirit speaks us. The Holy Spirit gives us insight into God's will for our life, both generally and specifically for each and every one of us. But most of all, when he's speaking of God, he speaks of Christ. The book of Colossians is called one of the most Christ-revealing, one of the most Christ-centered books in all of the Bible. Now, of course, all of the Bible speaks of Christ. All of the Bible points to Christ. That is true. But Paul, so flatly, so plainly lays out who this Christ is more than any of his other letters. He calls Christ the hope of glory. He says of Christ, or he speaks of Christ in his supremacy. In chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, he lays out this hymn, this, this very amazing poem of just how supreme, the supremacy of Christ. He says that he is the image of the invisible God and that all of the fullness of God dwells in him. So he says, it's not that Christ is like God. It's not that Christ, you know, kind of mimics God. It's not that Christ is, you know, uh, in some way, this minor person who points us to God. He is God. He is the very image of him. All of the fullness of the Father lives in him. He is equal with God because he is God. He makes no mistake there. He does not butcher his words. He makes everybody, you know, he, he makes sure that he's very clear that Christ is God. He says that he is supreme over all of creation, that Christ, that all things have been made through Christ, all things have been made for Christ, and all things are being sustained by Christ. And that he's also supreme over the church, that he is the head of the church, the beginning of the church, that He's the one who brought us together and reconciled us with God, reconciled us with the Father through his death, that we found peace with God and we now have peace with one another as the church that's being brought together by him 
we have this peace with God and with each other because of violence and death on a cross. Through bloodshed on a cross. So he begins to talk about the supremacy of Christ, that he is the authority, that he is the head. And yet at the same time, he begins to speak of the humility, of the meekness. The same one who is supreme over everything, the same one who is the head of everything is also the same one who died for us. The same one who is the authority is the same one who made himself low so that we would have peace with God and with each other. So he speaks of the authority and he speaks of the humility. He speaks of the highness and he speaks of the lowliness of Christ. By spelling out, by laying out who God is, he then begins to declare, he begins to, to, to reveal then who we are. Because of who God is, we then get to see who the church is. We've been saying that the clearer that we see who God is, the clearer that we see him for who he really is, the clearer we begin to see everything else, including who we are, including his, his view of the church. Right? And so since Paul clearly, again, lays out who God is, who Christ is, it begins to clearly show how God views the church. And not just how God views the church, but how we ought to view the church, how we ought to view one another, how we ought to view ourselves. He says, when speaking of his view of the church, he says that the church belongs to God. It belongs to him. That if Christ is the head, then we are his body. If Christ is supreme over all things, that includes the church. If it's by God's will that we're reconciled to him by his work, then again, we belong to him. If it's, you know, if God is our, our father, then by definition, we are his children. We belong to him in that sense. So we've, we spoke of belonging to him in the sense of we are God's property. We are God's possession, right? He created us. We did not create him. So in that sense, we are his possession. We are God's property. But also in the same sense, in belonging to God, we are God's family, that he is our father. He, we are his children. Paul says in chapter one, at the very beginning, chapter one, verse three, I believe it is. He says to the church, as he's addressing the church, who is he writing this letter to? Who is, who is he writing this letter to? He says, I'm writing this letter to the church, God's church, to God's people. But he uses some descriptors in there. He says to God's holy people, to the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's not just that, you know, in, in, he doesn't just reveal that we belong to God in that statement. He also reveals that we are holy. We're not just to God's people. We are God's holy people. We are not just God's holy people, but we are the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Holy meaning different, sacred, set apart. You are set apart by God, set apart for God. That there is a reason that God has separated you. There is a reason that God has made you holy. There is a reason that God has called you holy, to be separate. He says you are faithful. Faithful meaning trustworthy. Believing, loyal, loyal in, in the sense of loyal to the faith. That this, I believe in this God. I will stand on this God. I will stand by his word. I trust in him. I believe in him. The word says, you and I, the church of Colossae, all the church together is holy and faithful. And just as, you know, Paul spelled, uh, you know, uh, points out many times throughout his letter that the we're brothers and sisters that we are united together as a family, that we are united together in Christ, that we share this common denominator with one another. We are in Christ. 
that we did not get into this family by our own works. We didn't get into this family by our by any any other means apart from Christ. Paul writes, "We are holy in His sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. Any accusation that stands against me is now gone because of Christ." He says that the church is raised and alive with Christ. He says that as the church, we are seated at the right hand of God in heavenly places. We talked about uh, how the church is the bride of Christ when we were talking about marriage in Colossians chapter 3. We talked about being God's chosen, dearly loved, and united with one another in Christ. Paul begins to show us, right, because of who this God is, the more we begin to see who God is, because of who this God is, we now begin to see who we are. We begin to see who the, you know, what the church is, who the church is, how God views the church. Paul begins to lay out the identity of the believer and of, of the church based on who God is. And so we ask this question, if this is how God views the church, if this is his view of the church, do we share that same view? Do we view the church as holy? Do we view the church as faithful? Do we view each other as holy and faithful? Do we view each other as brother and sister? Do we view ourselves as holy? Do we view ourselves as faithful? If this is God's view of the church, do we share in the same view that God has of it? Or does it differ? Do we know or do we believe or do we see ourselves as God's chosen, as dearly loved, as united with one another, as holy in his sight and without blemish, free from accusation? The more we begin to see who God is, the more we begin to see us, the more God begins to reveal who we are and how he views us. And if this is how he views us, then we must grow in our ability. We must grow in our knowledge. We must grow in, in the capacity to, to believe, to see as he sees, to see ourselves in that way, to see each other in that way. He spells out, this is who God is. And in doing so, this is now who we are. This is who the church is. In showing you know, the, the view of the church, how is it that you and I could be called holy? How is it that you and I could be called faithful? How is it that you and I can be called dearly loved? How is it that, that any of these things, because we, we all know, I know for a fact I'm not holy. I know for a fact I am not faithful. I know for a fact that, uh, you know what? It says that I am free from accusation. Well, if I go to the law, no, there's plenty that's there that, that, can, that can accuse me. So how is it that God can have this view of me? That's the third theme that we've been laying out, that Paul has been laying out in his letter. It's the gospel. This gospel message that is sufficient to save you and sufficient to completely satisfy you. Sufficient to save you, sufficient to satisfy you. There is this uh, quote that we you know, read at the very beginning of our study uh, by a pastor named John Piper, and he says, uh, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's actually when I remember uh, before I even came here, uh, it's, that's the reason why this is called satisfied. There's a reason for that name. Because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When we look to God to be our ultimate delight, when we look to God to be our ultimate source of joy, when we look to God to be our ultimate satisfaction, that is when God is most glorified in us. That is when God is most revealed in us and through us. That is when everything in our life begins to reveal him, begins to point others to him. 
when he is our ultimate satisfaction, when he is our ultimate joy, when he is our ultimate everything, that is when God is most glorified in us. So Paul spells out throughout the book of Colossians this gospel message that transforms us, that rules us, that fills us with this inexpressible joy that completely satisfies us. He says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. We were once far. We were far from him. We were once an enemy of God. You opposed him because of your evil behavior. You were without hope. You were without any chance of salvation. You were without any hope of getting close to him. We were far from him. We were estranged from him. We were, far, we were an enemy of him. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 says, you were dead in your sins. You were completely dead. And if you were dead, how do you make yourself alive? How do you bring yourself to life? You can't. There was nothing that you could do to make yourself alive. There was nothing that you could do to bring yourself closer to God. There was nothing. You did not aid God in your salvation. You didn't help him. You could do nothing. If I am dead now, if I die right now, I can't perform CPR on myself. I can't give myself the drugs that I need. I can't do anything to myself. I'm dead. But God. It says, but now you are reconciled. But now your sins have been paid for. Chapter 1, verse 13 again says, you were dead in your sins. But verse 14 goes on to say, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. He canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against it. Again, when we go to the law of God, that is a legal matter. And when I sin against God, when I fall short of the law, that's a legal matter. So there is a legal debt that now needs to be paid. There is a legal debt that I now owe against God and God canceled it. God canceled it. it says he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So it's not when God canceled it, it's not that God swept it under the rug. Somebody has to bear the cost. When there is a debt, somebody has to pay it. It doesn't just magically disappear. It doesn't just get swept under the rug. God says, somebody still has to pay this debt. And canceling it for me, it doesn't mean, again, that it just magically vanished. No, he canceled it by paying it himself, by placing that punishment on Christ. So that legal debt that now I once owed laid upon the cross, paid for in full. That was God's work. That was done by God's grace. That was done by God's choosing. And as a, a sign of, you know, to, to seal this relationship, Christ says, it's better that I go so that the Holy Spirit come. So now this God who doesn't just save me, this God who doesn't just, you know, take away my sin, and then, you know, he doesn't just do all that and then stand back and say, well, I hope you figure out the rest of your life. I hope you get it all together. I hope you make it into heaven. I hope you, you know, I hope you've seen enough and done enough. You know, let's see which, how you do now. No. The same God who has done all this to bring me into the relationship with him now abides in me. The same power 
that raised Christ from the dead is now the same power that lives in me. The same power that lives in you as the church in each and every believer. So he doesn't just, again, save you and then, you know, stay back and stand, you know, and just hoping, just taking notes and no, no, no. He not only saves you, you know, he's the one who brought himself close to you and remains close to you by placing his very precious and Holy Spirit in you. How can he get any closer? By living inside of you. He has saved us from the penalty of sin. He has seated us in heavenly places. He has all the, everything that we talked about as far as the identity of the church, he has given it to us because of this gospel message, through this gospel message. He took away the penalty of sin. He took away the power of sin. Sin no longer has a hold on me. And in the same gospel message, we find out that one day, one day, very soon, we will be saved from the presence of sin. It'll be done with. That Christ in us, the hope of glory, we have that hope that one day he's coming. We have that, not just an unreasonable hope, but a very reasonable hope. A very reasonable one, a very logical one that, Lord, you didn't do all that just to not fulfill this promise. You will come back soon and you will save us from the presence of sin once and for all. There is, again, no greater joy than knowing that your sins have been dealt with, that your debt has been canceled, that you and God are on good terms, on beautiful, wonderful terms, not just now, but forever. No greater joy to know he who created you and to begin to find out more and more why. There is nothing and no one. Nothing and no one. Even the, the good things that God blesses us with, even the good people that God blesses us with, there is nothing and no one who can satisfy you, who can love you, who can fill you, who can guide you like he can. Nothing and no one. There is nothing and no one who can change you like he can. There is nothing and no one who can do for you what he has already done for you. And to know him, to know him is life. That is the gospel message that saves you. That is the gospel message that completely satisfies you. Paul says there is no one else. This is the Christ you need to know. This is the God you need to know. This is the message you need to know. Paul roughly divides his letter into, into two parts. Uh, the first two chapters are mostly, not completely, but mostly dedicated to the first three themes. Right? Uh, mostly dedicated to who is God, the church, and the gospel. And the last two chapters mostly dedicated to the final theme that we covered. Uh, that being that in light of the first three themes, in light of who God is, in light of his view of the church, in light of this gospel message that saves and satisfies you, what then is our proper response? That this knowledge that, you know, once we begin to know more of who God is, once we begin to know more of how he views us, 
once we begin to know this gospel message that saves you and satisfies you, you, you can't come into knowledge of that. You can't come into belief of that. You can't get hit with a message like that, with a love like that, with a power like that, and there be absolutely no change in your life. It's not possible. It isn't possible. And this isn't for anyone to begin to look at themselves. To say, well, I don't see the gospel changing in my life. That's not up to you. Your job is to believe this. When you see him for who he really is, and when you see how he begins to view you, when you begin to understand the gospel that you cannot earn his love, that you cannot earn his salvation, when you begin to see that, you will see the fruit in your life. You absolutely will. It is not possible. Because the Bible tells us that a good tree bears good fruit. And if Christ is the true vine, if Christ is the good tree, oh, my life will bear good fruit. And so Paul says there will be this fruit in our lives and the, the desires of our heart will begin to change. He tells us at the beginning of chapter three, when he begins to speak of what is this proper response, he says, fix your eyes on things above. Fix your eyes on heavenly things. Fix your thoughts, fix your hearts, fix your mind, your will, your emotions. Fix that on things above. We get so fixated on, something, on things that are temporary, things that will not last. Paul says, fix your gaze above. Fix it upon him. Know him. Listen to him. Spend time with him. Fix your heart, your mind, your will, your thoughts, your everything. Fix it above. And in doing so, put to death what belongs to the earthly nature. He says, put to death the sexual immorality. Put to death the impurity. Put to death the lust, the evil desires, the greed, the idolatry. He says, get rid of the anger and the rage, the malice, the slander, the lying, and the filthy language. That as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, these aren't the things that we're to clothe ourselves with. Rather, we're to clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So put to death the things of the earthly nature. Kill those things. You have the power. The Holy Spirit now lives in you. The Holy Spirit now lives in you to say yes to all godliness and no to all unrighteousness. And he says, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with one another. Put up with one another. I have to put up with you. You have to put up with me in love. And he says, forgive one another. There's a grievance. If there's an issue, forgive. Just as Christ has forgiven you. Put on love over all of these virtues, over all of these things. Put on love over all of them, which binds them together in perfect unity. We've been called to peace. We've been called to live in unity. That is our proper response to this gospel. Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since you are all called to peace. We said peace. We don't normally think of peace as authoritative, but he says, let this peace rule over you. Let it govern you. Submit to the peace of Christ. This peace that passes all understanding. This peace that, that, that gives you that quiet, that rest of the soul that says, like, I'm good with God. That peace he says, let that peace govern you. Let that peace rule over you. He says, let the name or let the message of Christ richly dwell among you. 
Let the word of Christ richly dwell among you through all teaching, through all admonishing one another. We're to, we're to teach each other, we're to admonish one another. He says, teach each other and admonish one another and let the word uh, richly dwell among you through all songs, through worship, through songs and hymns. Sing with one another. As you're doing so, you are sharing the word together. He says, let that word richly dwell among you. Let the name of Christ guide all that you do. That the name of Christ is to be my guide, whether I'm at work, how is the name of Christ honored here? How is the name of Christ going to guide me here? Whether I'm at school, how is the name of Christ going to guide me here? Whether I'm at home, how is the name of Christ going to guide me here? Let the name of Christ guide all that you do. And then Paul says, and in everything, give thanks. Rejoice. Be thankful. If for nothing else, the gospel. That saves you and satisfies you. When you have the one thing that can ultimately satisfy you, then we always have reason to rejoice. So Paul says, give thanks in everything. Paul, what he's doing is he's beginning to show the church that there is nothing, there is no area of our life, no area of, of, a, of a believer's life that is exempt from the gospel. That we can say, okay, I'm a, again, I'm a Christian in this area, or I will follow you in this area, I will be obedient to you in this area, yet over here, no. No, the gospel is all or nothing. Christ is either king or not. When Christ is marching into, into the city, you know, we're getting ready for Easter. When Christ is marching into the city, the only two options that someone had is either to crowd him as king or to crucify him. There was no in-between. There is no, uh, you know, he's kind of a nice guy. No, there was either you crowd him as king or you crucify him. That's it. So God doesn't give us any room in the middle. There is no space. It's either he is king or he isn't. So he's showing the church that there is no part of our life that the gospel doesn't touch. It affects everything. He says in your relationships, in your marriage, when we were talking in Colossians chapter 3, we looked at uh, Ephesians chapter 5, we looked at the story of Hosea. We, uh, Paul says, in your marriage, wives, submit to your husbands. Looking to Christ as your example. In the same way that as, as a man and a woman are equal in terms of identity, in terms of value, in terms of being made in the image of God, we see that Christ is equal with God the Father. But Christ did not use that equality to his own advantage when the time came. Rather, he emptied himself, made himself low, submitted himself to the Father's will in the same way wives submit to your husbands. And then husbands, love your wives with that sacrificial kind of love, with that sacrificial kind of service, that though Christ, and again, looking to Christ as our example, though as Christ is the head of the church, Right? The disciples called Christ Lord and teacher and master. They recognized him as the authority. They recognized him as the head. And yet, though they recognized him as the head, Christ took the position of the servant and washed their feet. Christ took the position of the slave and died for their sins. Christ sacrificed. He's the head. And in the same way, husbands love sacrificially your wives. He says, children, obey your parents. Parents, do not discourage your children, but raise them to know the Lord, to fear the Lord, to love the Lord. Right? Don't, don't so discourage them to the point where they begin to think there is no pleasing you. 
He says, when, when speaking of, of work, that the gospel touches our work, that we aren't to work as if we are working for earthly masters, but no, we are working for our master in heaven because it's all ministry. That when we go to work, we're to mimic our father. When, when the father, was, when God was creating, he brought order out of chaos. Says the, the the Genesis chapter one that describes this chaotic void, this chaotic nothingness. God brought order out of that chaos. God brought beauty out of that darkness, out of nothing. So when I go to work, we begin to think, how can I bring order here? How can I bring something beautiful out of nothing? When you begin to think that way, when you begin to think, how can I bring some structure here? How can I bring some order here? How can I mimic my, when you begin to think that way, you begin to mimic your father in creation. You begin to mimic your father's work. This is how the gospel touches every part of our lives. We begin to see that everything is ministry. That again, that there is no part of our life that is to be exempt from the gospel. There is no part of our life that is to say that, God, you don't reign here. There is no part of our life that God doesn't have something to say about. There is no part of our life where God isn't to, supposed to be included in. That he, if he is living within us, then he goes everywhere. He is everywhere. So we don't limit him in that sense. The gospel touches everything. Paul says that we're to be a people devoted to prayer. That we're to be a people walking in wisdom towards those who don't know this gospel. That we are to be a people who know more and more of what this gospel says and of what this gospel means and the implications of this gospel. And that we're not to just know it more and more, but we're able, that we're to be able to communicate it clearly to those who are around us. That we are to be able to give reason for the hope that lies within us. And if this is who God is, and if this is what he says about us, and if this is this gospel message that saves and satisfies us, now part of our proper response, Paul writes, is to be able to share it, is to be able to clearly communicate, is to be able to give reason for the hope that lies within us. And all of this, this proper response, this, you know, this, this now doing as God has called us to do because of who God is, because of what God or how God views us, because of this gospel message that saves and satisfies us, there is this proper response that God is looking for. But let us not forget that in this doing, this is not a matter of earning your salvation. This is not a matter of building up good works with God so that then he will love you, then he will bless you, then he will, no, no. He has already loved. He has already saved. So these good works are not a matter of then, you know, it's as Paul writes again in, in Romans chapter one, verse five, this is now the obedience that comes from the faith. There's an obedience that God is expecting that comes from this right relationship with him. When I am in right relationship with God, the right belief, the right works follow. The right living follows. And so when Paul is talking about this this proper response. Again, this isn't to say, okay, now now I have to do these things in order for God to love me. Now I have to do these things in order for God to save me. Now I, if I start doing these things, then maybe God will pay attention to me. If I start doing these things, then maybe God will save me. No, then we've automatically forgotten the first three themes. 
The fourth theme, this proper response to God, is in light of the first three. It's in light of who God is. It's in light of how he already views you. It's in light of this gospel message that has already saved you and should satisfy you. Paul then speaks of his ministry partners, which we've been covering over the past few weeks. And then he closes with verse 18. I write this greeting with my own hand. You know, this is not a counterfeit. This is not somebody else doing this. This is me, Paul, the apostle, actually speaking to you. And he asks them for one other prayer request. He says, remember my chains. That, you know, I remember, well, one commentator writes, um, you, know, you can kind of imagine as Paul is penning his letter, just the chains dragging across the page as he's writing because he's chained up. Remember, he's, he's in prison when he's writing this letter as he is with most of his letters that he's writing. He says, remember my chains. If I'm, if I'm receiving this letter and I get, you know, and somebody says, remember my chains. If I begin to remember that Paul's in chains, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for him. Paul isn't, uh, if you remember back from uh, earlier in chapter four, Paul isn't necessarily asking to be freed from jail. But he was asking oh, that there would be an open door, not for himself, but an open door for the ministry, an open door for the gospel. He says, remember my chains. I'm still in chains. I'm still in prison, but let this gospel continue. Let the work continue. He says, remember my chains. And then he ends with his own prayer for the church. Grace be with you. He began his letter, chapter one, verse two, grace and peace to you from our father. And he ends his letter with grace again. That grace to know, or that grace that's the, the favor the, the kindness, the blessing that's been brought to us as a gift, the gift by Christ, a gift that is Christ. He says that grace be with you. And may that same grace be with us. That same grace to know where our ultimate riches come from, where our true treasures lie. That grace to know who the Lord is, to be known by him, to walk with him. That grace to know how close he is to you. That grace to know the will that he has for each and every one of us. That grace to know that our sins have been forgiven. May that grace abound in each and every person. We'll close with this before we, we pray there is always more. There is always, 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 always more. We could start the book of Colossians from chapter one, verse one next week, and we could go through it all again. And I promise you, there would be so much more that we didn't touch. Take time with him in his word. Don't let the word, don't let time with him be a negotiable thing. Don't let time with him be one of those, you know, uh, extraneous things that is like, ah, it's not that deep. Take that time with him. Time is not wasted when you spend it with him. Time is not wasted when you are in his word. You need, we need to learn to disconnect. We need to learn to get to, to disconnect from the busyness of life. Yes, there is work. Yes, there is school. Yes, there is relationships. They're all good. They're all important. I get it. There is nothing and no one else that will satisfy you like this. This is your life. 
It's because of him that any of those other things actually have any value or meaning in the first place. Take that time with him and know that there is always, 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 always more. And for those who are willing to sit and wrestle, to sit at his feet, I promise you he will speak to you. He will speak to you. He always has something more for those who are willing to listen.